On page 12 of your liturgy, we're going to read Romans 6, chapter 6, verses 1 to 12. What will we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So we would no longer be enslaved to sin because someone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Carol. You think that I would really be excited about Easter, but often I am not. Isn't that terrible? Isn't that just awful? And I think one of the reasons why I'm not is because it's one of those things where like, I'm supposed to shine or I'm supposed to like, do something special or something like that. And whenever I feel like, like a little trained monkey, like I'm supposed to do something special for you, I don't like that. I don't like the pressure. I want to buck it and I want to push it off me somehow. But there's some other practical reasons I have too. Because often we have visitors at Easter. And so, you know, like, like, all right, that's what I'm talking about Christianity or baptism. Right? I don't know, I can't gauge what the fund of people's info is. Right? People are li likely to visit you said it was your first time ever witnessing a baptism today, right, Patricia? And so people are, it's new. These are, these are new. And so I can't, I don't know what to assume. I don't know what you know, don't know, or imagine. And so, you know, it's a little tricky, a little tricky. Come on in. Come on. <laughs> and, um, and so it gets a little tricky to, to, know, to know kind of how to, how to prepare. You know, I was thinking about this. Uh, and what I was reminded was, is, is that a friend of yours, Bethany? Oh, I thought it was. I thought it was. And what I was reminded was, do you know the early church did not celebrate Easter? Did you know that? Easter, in fact, there was a big debate about which day to pick in the later, in the later part of the second century. The early church, they even called, they even called Easter, they, Easter is actually named after a pagan uh, deity. And uh, Oster or something like that. And, and so it's not, it's, it, it, uh, and I think Pope Gregory uh, in, in one of his, uh, but what that pope wrote actually wrote an encyclical about this, where he encouraged uh, people to sync up Christian holidays with pagan ones to get the pagans to go to church. Right? That makes sense, right? It's, it's a way to it's a good gambit to kind of counter whatever's going on in the world around us, and so. 
Anyway, uh, the, the early church was, had no Easter celebration. You know what the thing the early church didn't do? It never marked where any of this stuff happened. It never marked the tomb. It never set it aside. There were never, there were never flowers put in front of it. There was never any designated. They never put a plaque in front of it. They never did any of that stuff. They never seemed to think it was important to figure out what day and where it happened. I think I know why. I think I know why, because I think for a lot of us, the Easter story or the story of the resurrection of a man from the dead, those kind of things, they've fallen on deaf ears. For a lot of us, we've heard these things. They're artifacts. They're cultural artifacts to us. We've heard some of these stories somewhere. We know people are out there who do these things. We recognize at least we recognize some of these symbols and these ideas and these stories. Well, there's some recognition somewhere. But these, the ancient church seemed utterly disinterested in that stuff. I think I know why. What would you do? How would you act? What would be the, the impact on your life, on your daily behavior, on your attitude, or, or, or how you lived and what you lived for if you had truly seen a human being walk out of a tomb after they had died. Just think, think just to try to walk, maybe, maybe, you don't, maybe you have faith today and maybe you don't. But all I'm doing is inviting you into this, into this um, to walk, walk in my shoes, my believing shoes. Put on my believing hat for a second. And just imagine if you were to witness something, how much would it change for you? It would change everything, wouldn't it? it would, you, all of a sudden, reality would have, you'd have a bunch of question marks about what's real, what's not, what's true, and what's possible. Uh, there's a movie uh, where actually Tal and I have a date to watch it tonight. It's The Risen. It, it's, called, uh, it's called The Risen, isn't it called The Risen? And it's another Hollywood version of early Christianity. But they do something in this particular film that I found kind of charming. And, and the theme of the movie, and I encourage you to see it, is a centurion who's been sent to go find the body of Jesus. Now, in this movie, the claims of Christianity are real. Jesus is not dead. He is risen from death, just, just the way the scriptures teach. And this centurion, this hard-bitten soldier of the ancient world, he saw Jesus die on the cross. He watched him die. And, of course, a Roman centurion would have actually crucified thousands of people. That's how proficient they were at it and how commonly it happened. Well, in the story, in the movie, uh, they can't find the body of Jesus. And Pilate's upset because if we can't find the body, that's going to give these naive locals the, the belief that they have some, some God that's risen from the dead. So he wants to disprove and get rid of any possibility of a, of a new religion started. So he sends this centurion to go find Jesus. Now, here's where the charming bit comes in. He meets the disciples. Now, I don't know who wrote this, wrote this. I guess I could have looked it up. I don't know who wrote it. I don't know what their faith convictions are inside or what they know or don't know about God. But somebody tried to capture, and those actors did too, they tried to capture just what I just described. What would, how would you be different as a person in your attitude, your words, how you handle yourself? How would you be different if you saw a human being conquer death right in front of you. Well, in the, in the movie, this, the Roman soldiers are quizzing, quizzing the disciples. Where's Jesus? Where, where'd you put his body? Where is he? 
and they're giddy. It's kind of funny. It's, a fun, it's fun to watch in the movie. He writes them. It's kind of giddy, almost kind of silly. And they're like, I don't know, he's around here somewhere. You can go find him yourself. It doesn't really matter if you find him. You can't kill him anyway. They're giddy. They're, 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 there's this infectious smile constantly in their faces as Peter starts telling the centurion, you have no, you, it's fine. If you want to meet him, you can meet him. You won't believe. And, and there's no fear. No fear. Just pure, like, bubbling joy, like a sense that life has possibility. And when you get to my age, I might be one of the oldest people in the room, when you get older, you, be, you know, you, be, you, start, you start to, life loses some of its luster, right? <laughs> the myths and the fairy tales of youth and the possibilities of new starts and new beginnings, or the possibility that hope is real, it all just kind of dims over time, doesn't it? Doesn't it? And so in the, in the movie, it captures that. And I think that is the reason why we don't know the exact place these things happen or the day in which they happen. Because what could be less important than the place he walked out of? It's the fact that he walked out of the tomb. That's amazing. Who cares where he lay? Why would it ever be important? You know, they changed uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the Jewish tradition what, do, you, do you remember what day? Well, you all know this. The day that they worship is the Saturday, right? So the great change the early church made was because Jesus was born on the first day of the week after a Sabbath on a Sunday morning, this has become now our day of worship. That was the big change and nothing else. Because every week was Easter week for those folks. So I, I'm, hoping, I'm hoping that by the Spirit, I'm going to pray in a second for this, because something, there's something missing here. I haven't even addressed you. There's something deeply missing from this. From this. We, well, it's not missing. We've been praying, but it's missing for me, put it that way. I don't think the spiritual truth can be apprehended by physical minds. I think something has to happen in this place. God has to come, and he has to reveal himself to you. I can't do it. I'm just a servant. I'm just here talking. But God needs to be present for me and for you, for all of us. I'm going to ask him right now. Father, I know you hear me. You always hear me. I ask for ability to speak, ability to understand, ability to convey these truths. And I ask, I ask for all of us to have that, all of us together. I, I don't want any more than you give anybody else in this room. Give us the fullness of your presence, the fullness of the Spirit. Otherwise... Otherwise, yeah, it's just another day. It revealed to us the beauty of Jesus and what's possible in your love. Reveal to us grace. Reveal to us hope. Reveal to us forgiveness. Forgive the sins and the ruin of the man who speaks. For there are so, it's, there are so many. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So uh, there's two misconceptions about Christianity, so I'll start with two misconceptions, two, two classic misconceptions, and I'm going to call one a distant misconception, a misconception from a distance, and the other one's a misconception you get up close, when you get up close with Christianity. It's a misconception that's living in the room, I, I'm sure of it, and, and I know because it's living in me at times. But the first mis misconception is a misconception at a distance, and there's two misconceptions I'm talking about. The first one is a misconception of Christianity, that Christianity is ultimately and this is from a distance as you're looking at it, and I don't know how familiar all y'all are. Christianity is about moral improvement. 
isn't it? I mean, what else do you do religious things for, right? I mean, what is the purpose of the religious enterprise as an idea? What is its purpose or its function? Well, it's to make better people, isn't it? And isn't Christianity just like all those other religions? It has a list of rules. Look at the very last line of your text. Look at the very last line of your text that we read from Romans 6. It says, let not, what, somebody read it to me. Let not, what does it say? Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies to obey its passions. Case closed. Go out and do likewise. No. That would be a mistake. That would be a mistaken reading of that text. To think that Christianity was fundamentally about moral improvement. Interesting, that's a misconception. But there's a truth in it, and we'll see it in a little bit. The second misconception, which happens when you belly up to Christianity, you might have actually met Christians like this, you're really close to Christianity, and if you get close enough to Christianity, you learn some things. You learn this Good Friday event where Christ is on a cross, it's all about getting rid of all the bad stuff you've done. It's this idea that you can be washed by it. It's this idea that's, we, it's not too hard to grasp as an abstract idea. This is the idea that Christ is this substitutionary penal, he receives the guilt, that, the punishment due to you, he receives it on himself, you believe in him, you get the blessing of that, of that event. That comes to you. And what create, what's created out of this, especially when I was in the South, I, I pastored for 15 years in Atlanta, what you get is a lot of people who know all that story, and they come to Christianity, and they, and they, they really do like it, because Christianity becomes a gospel, it becomes a, a story of sin management. What's the point of this Christianity? You know what it does? It manages my shame. It gives me some, some way out of the guilt issues I'd struggle with. It, it, it manages my sin. And, I, and a lot of people like that. A lot of, a lot of people are all game for that, aren't, aren't, wouldn't you be? This something's going to make, it all, make you all better? And just go on your way. And this became... This became a, a hallmark or a cornerstone of a lot of cultural Christianity. People who knew the story and realized the story got them somewhere. Clean. And let me tell you something. You give, a, you give a character like me a clean slate, and the first thing he wants to go do is go mess it up. But still, I can't get it cleaned again. And you get these ideas that really what this religion is about is about dealing with with the sinful crap I do, <laughs> and getting rid of it and washing it away. If you met Christians like this, you've probably heard them claim Christ and then do, see them do evil things. There's no contrary. You know, well, why? why? Why is there any problem with me, you know, uh, um, uh, cheating on the person that I love or cheating on my wife? Well, you know, I have a gospel of sin management. It's going to manage all that. I can solve those problems. My religion helps me. You see? And so Christianity becomes this carte blanche, becomes a blank check, you see, and in which, in which perhaps, perhaps you can get away with a lot of stuff and keep coming back for more, right, to manage whatever other failure you're bringing to the table. These two misconceptions, where you're going to manage my sin problem, or it's just in order to make me a better person, they both fail. They both have a truth in them. There's a truth nestled right in the heart of both those ideas, but but it's not understood by the presence of the Spirit. That's why I pray for God to reveal himself to you. What's all this buildup about? 
Christianity is weird, y'all. Christianity is far stranger and far more bizarre and claims something far greater than anybody is paying attention to. Even, even in the classic articulation of the Buddhism that which I was raised, even, even the summit of Buddhism, which is the, the nirvana moment, is to blow out, is to extinguish consciousness. The concept at the apex of the Christian, of the biblical idea is this. You and God become one. Let me say that again. It's, it's the summit of all human possible endeavor about the religious enterprise itself. And it claims as its prize what it offers you in Jesus is union with you and the divine. Didn't you read it in the text? Take a look in the text here. The prepositions are what really tells it. It's right there in the verse in, uh, in that, in, uh, should have had this in front of me. It's right there into, in verse 3. Look at those how kinetic and living it is. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? I love the fact that into is in there, and that's actually an accurate vision of the Greek. It's not just the, it's just not the, uh, not the preposition in, it's into. And the reason I like that is it's living. Into implies kinetic, right? It implies motion. It's living. And it's into. It's, you can't, it's not even, it's in, it's, it, it implies identity. And that, see, I don't think anybody's, I don't think anybody's knocking at the door of churches or Christianity thinking, is this the place where I become one with God? We don't think that way about our faith. I remember sitting with some pastors where the idea of deification of the believer came up. Do you realize that our Bible, this scripture practically teaches that? That we become so like God. We don't become a God, but we become one with him. All right, right at this point, right at the point I'm talking right now, I'm, I'm outside the categories of human experience, all right? Do, do you know what that, I, I, do, how, how shall I describe this to you? How, how shall I, what shall I say to you? Wait, only thing we could know is if you became one with a God, you would no longer be the same, would you? You, wouldn't, you would be changed, you would be transformed. You, something would happen. And, and what is being offered, what is being described in the prepositions, what is being figured forth in the waters of baptism is nothing less than mystical union. It's a mystery, and it's, and, and, is it metaphysical, is it physical, is it spiritual? Yes, <laughs> yes, and yes. You know, it seems to me that um, maybe it's because of the crassness of Christian culture or some of, the, some of the preachers we've all heard, but the prize being described here is extraordinary and articulates the hopes of all humanity, isn't it? That we would somehow touch or know or be one with the God, with the, the creator. Now, as we kind of, as we, even though these categories are outside of human experience, even though it's all here, I want us to, to try to flesh it out in just two ways. And we'll deal with the two misconceptions. The first misconception I told you was what? A misconception that Christianity is essentially a religion of moral improvement. 
But the answer to that is union with Jesus, though. Union with this God. Union with Jesus that's being described by the verbs, by, sorry, by the prepositions in this text and its syntax. Union with Jesus is union with his death. It's a union with the events of his death. Good Friday, we, had, we, we had, often in Good Friday services, we had a Good Friday service, we did the seven words, Christ and the cross, and it was deeply edifying. I, I really wish all you could have been there. It was really, I was surprised how delight, delighted and fed I was by the service. The systematic description of the sufferings of Jesus Christ are grueling, they're cruel, and I don't know if you've ever read a medical description of them, they're horrible. Actually, death on the cross is actually ultimately suffocation. Uh, the, 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 you can't breathe, your lungs are filling up with, with, with fluid, and and the only breath you can take is by pushing up with your feet or pulling up with your hands, which in Christ's case were, both, were all nailed to the wood. Anyway, there's this idea, though, that's being described right here. We, 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 we did it here at the table as we did the actual ritual itself in the sacrament. That we, Those who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. And first of all, union with Jesus is a union with his death. Now, this buries the first misconception right away. Look at the text right here. Look at the text says here in, in verse 6. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united. That, that's not it. Verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And the last, the last clause was essential. What am I saying? What's the, how does this answer the first misconception? That Christianity is essentially a religion of moral self-improvement. Self-improvement is impossible. Moral improvement is impossible. That is the claim of the text. Why? He uses two ways to describe it. First of all, your relationship to sin is a relationship with slavery. It's a relationship of a lack of ability to say no. And, and let, me, let, me, let me follow through on this. The, the scriptures describe you that you are free. You are free to do everything you want. And that's your problem. You can't control what you want. You're free to do everything you want. And that's your problem. You do only what you want. And you are, actually, you are actually engaged in slavery. You are unable to exercise your own will. Your, your will is under, the, is under, is under the, the, the property and control and direction of another. In this case, sin itself. It, 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 by saying that we were enslaved to sin, it immediately cancels any possibility of us establishing our own moral freedom. We can't do that. But it even gets better than that. Or it, it, it destroys the idea even more. Moral improvement is not just forbidden based upon the Scripture's view of, of, of humanity and its slavery to sin. But look at this. In order the body of sin might be brought to what? Look at that clause right there. In order that the body of sin might be brought to zero. The only way toward union with God is when the body of sin, what you and I have, what you and I share together, is brought to what? Zero. There's only one way to be united with Christ in his death. To be united in his burial. And that is to realize you have nothing to offer God for his grace. That's what made it grace. That's what made it free. That's what made it an act of love by him, you see. 
Now, this buried language, this buried language is where we cash in on the depth of this. The buried language is meant to be the language of absolute removal. You know what it goes back to? It's the, it's the language of, of removal. You can't, it's where somebody's completely separated away. Um, it, you know what it goes back to? It goes back to the language at, what, what, of what the cross is even patterned on. So you know, it's the cross, the cross is, there's pattern recognition going on here. You and I have talked about that, Colin. There's pattern recognition all across the Bible. One of the deepest patterns to recognize in the scripture is this idea of transfer, of things being transferred to another person and sent away. So in Leviticus 16, in the ancient, to these ancient people, God delivers to them a ritual. It wasn't like baptism, although there was a lot of blood involved, not water. And, you, and, 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 and so one day, one day a year called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the priest, after making a sacrifice for himself, and all these cleaning rituals, including his garments, he would enter into the holiest of holies. What was the holy of holies supposed to be? God's personal space. God's one-on-one space. God has a seat there. There's a curtain. You're not allowed in. Nobody's ever allowed in, except for once a year, when the high priest would do all these cleansings and offer a sacrifice for himself. And then he would take another sacrifice and bring it in. Well, while he's doing all that, there's an extra goat involved. You ever heard of the scapegoat? You ever heard of that, that scapegoat? This is where it comes from. The word scapegoat comes from the King James, which is a translation of the Azazel word in Hebrew, the scapegoat. And what, so this, this goat would be brought up, and, 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 and the high priest would put his hands on top of the goat, and he would confess the sin to all the people, even his own sins, over the head of the goat. And then somebody would take that animal, and it would be set, taken out into the wilderness and set free, out into the wilds, gone forever, put away, buried. Now, the poets, the poets go crazy for this. The psalmist says, oh, I want to capture this. As far, you know how God, how far God removes the sins from you? As far as the east is from the west. See, trying to get this picture. How far did the scapegoat go? How far could he go? Uh, Isaiah says, oh, God says, I take your sins, I put them behind me. Micah says, I throw them in the ocean. They can never be, can, never be, uh, never be fished for again. Uh, uh, Jeremiah says, God says, I will remember your sin no more. That's what's caught up in this buried language. And it's truly beautiful. I want to begin, just, 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 just coming out the gate here, this, um, this image, uh, the promise first is... Um, I meet believers, these are Christians, I'm talking to the Christians in the room, who are deeply, deeply scarred and wounded by, by past, past things they've done. I think this is probably a good chunk of every ministry that you do, and every church I've been in. And, and there's always people who just, who are carrying a memory. Maybe it's 10 years old, maybe it's 30 years old. My memories, the memories that get, catch me, that trip me, and, and cause me to to hate myself or fear for myself are 40, 40 plus years old. I don't know how old yours are. Mine are about that old. The ones that really, really terrify me. Um, what God has forgotten. Let me say this just to myself. Chris, you are not permitted to remember either. 
You see, this idea of removal and the punk, it's so punctiliar, buried, gone. It's, a, it's almost this once for all concept, this complete removal. And I want to encourage you, I want to encourage your hearts, I want to encourage you in, in, in the freedom and forgiveness and grace that's in Jesus. Remind yourself of it again and again and again. And remind yourself again and again of this, of what it means to be united with him in his death. It means all of that body of sin in you and me is buried. It's gone. And he remembers it no more. Here's the, here's the, Remember what I began with one of the misconceptions is gospel, that, the, uh, that, that Christianity is a gospel of sin management? This is where people get that mistake, right? From this very teaching. Not realizing it answers the moral improvement problem. That's the problem it really addresses. Because I am one with the God-man himself. His righteousness and his holiness and his goodness and his forgiveness and his freedom and his blood applies to me. If I am united with Christ by, by believing in him, I am united to his death. Now, if you don't know Jesus, one of the things that happens here, what happened with Bethany, Bethany just went through the ritual of entrance. This is a ritual of entrance because she met Jesus. <laughs> she met Jesus and the reality of Christ because Christ lives. If the, truth, if, the, if the truths of these stories are true, then Christ lives now as I speak. Now, the opportunity to meet him and, and to know him has brought new life and freedom from shame into my sister's life. And that's what we were celebrating today. That's what we were celebrating by ritual. I want you here in Bethany and here in, in the ritual and here in the words and here in me proclaiming Christ's death, you're invited too. You're invited to give your life to this God. This God beckons us in. This God is welcoming in sin. Because who did Jesus come to unite his death to? It was to sinners. It was to those who didn't even want it, who didn't care if they had it, who desperately wanted it perhaps or needed it. And it's being given away by trust in this God. Why trust? Well, why not? He's moving towards you with an act of love, and he asks you now move to him with an act of love. I believe. There's a possibility to enter into union with Christ in the sound of my words. You know what? It's really kind of funny. I mean, I'm talking. I'm just going to keep talking for a little while. And you can choose to not listen or not listen. But one of the things you can do, even while you're listening or half listening, is to start asking this God to do what I'm talking about. Ask him to make himself real and known to you because I can do it. But Christians and brothers and sisters, and I want you to hear those who aren't, who, aren't, who aren't sharing our faith, I want you to hear me speak to those who are in our faith. If Christ, Christ is buried, you were buried with him, right? And he rose from the dead. Um, stop. When it comes to those memories, I heard a preacher say this, I just want to mention it, and I kind of liked it. Um, stop being the dog going for that bone, that old memory, that thing you did. Because you can dig up the grave of Christ. He's gone. <laughs> he's not there he rose from the dead uh, we're forbidden to go back into our past we were buried with him don't be the dog going for that bone anymore and you know who you are when I'm talking to you praise him now the union with his death is only half the story 
Union with Jesus is also a union with his life. It's all over this text. If you were baptized into his death, you were baptized into a life like his. Did you, did you read how expansive the language is? That the life he lives, he lives to God. And then if we're in him, then it, when our lives live to God. And there's an idea here. Have you ever heard of the idea that Christianity is all about, like, if you believe in Jesus, you get eternal life? You've heard that, right? You've heard that. Kind of, that maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But that's kind of a common meme that, that you know, Christianity gets you eternal life. Uh, in old, old tombstones, it would say, uh, on somebody's the date of their death, it would say, entered into eternal life, you know, June 10th, 1815 or something, right? And, but that is actually, although it's a nice sentiment in those old, all those old tombstones, I grew up across an old cemetery, and you see them, they're, they're, you know, they're, they have all sorts of inscriptions like that. But that particular inscription, I think, is unfortunate. Because you don't enter eternal life when you die in this, in this system. It's another misconception about Christianity. You enter eternal life when you are united to Jesus. The moment you are united, a new kind of life of joy and peace and power and freedom is now you. Union with his death means, yeah, that's wonderful. Union with Christ means union with his death. It also means a union with his life. And now, all of a sudden, the possibility of an indestructible life is real in this world. Because I am one with my God and his life and the life I live. I live in him and through him and for him. And everything's changed now. And there's a possibility. There's a possibility of hope, of joy, of wonder, of all so many things become real and immediate and possible for us. And this idea that it drips all over the text, that we are, we are forever and now fully free. And this, 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 uh, uh, take a look here. Uh, this actually finally answers then. Well, let's take a look here. It says, um, uh, so uh, the, the death he died, he died to sin once for all in verse 10. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Um, I wanted to look at this. It's this idea that eternal life is now. Um, what are my notes? Oh, yeah, you have choices now. Take a look. You are now free. Uh, look at back here in verse, uh, where's the word on freedom in here? Uh, you will, God, freedom, what does it say? Uh, verse 7, thank you. Because someone who has died has been set free from sin. Thank you. It's just not formatted like the stuff I was looking at before. You have choices now. That's what that means. You have a new agency. That's what freedom means. You are no longer dictated to by your weaknesses and by your failures. Now you have a new personhood by being united to God. There's an idea here. You know, I, um, you know internally, I, outwardly, I'm, I'm very good at looking strong. I'm very good at looking like, like I'm the pastor. I'm super pastor or something. But inside, I'm just, I'm, I've got all sorts of insecurity coming at me, like fear, and what are they all going to think of me, or what's going to happen to me, or am I, am I going to fail as a pastor, am I going to fail as a church planner, and all, all these fears that hound me and, and, and come at me. I don't have, in the end, I have discovered in this life, I don't have the stuff to be the great man. I find weakness upon weakness, bah, but I have a secret. I have been united with Christ's life. 
And even when I'm faced with failure, I trust him and his success. His, the, new, the life that he walks in, you see? And, you know, and even though, even though I'm, I, I, and so what we're being, and what's being described here is, is, is something new and kinetic, like I said in the, in the, into. I want you to look at this last, this last, this last verse, uh, not last verse, but verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I love this, that you must consider. That word there is reckon. It has to do, it, it, it comes from the word for logic, logistomai. It comes from the word to, to think and to process and to, and to add up and to figure out. And I love this because you're being invited now and we're being invited in this text. Figure this stuff out. Know these things. Reckon this. Figure out what does it mean for you to be in and a part of the life of a God. You can imagine some things, can't you? Can't you imagine what that might deliver to you? What possibilities that might open up in your life and heart? What might be real? What might be what you could hope for? This word consider, I love the word I'm reckoning and considering because it invites you and me to use our minds and our hearts and our wills to figure this out, to, to discover, because it's a lifetime of discovery at this point, right? Because God is that big. Remember, I think sometimes, you know, when I talk about union with God, let's, let's get real. The universe is over 14 billion years old and observably stretches 92 billion light years across. And I just said there's a God. You may not believe me, not agree with me. I just said there's a God. That means he's bigger than all that and greater still, more ancient than the universe and greater. And he said to Carol, I want to be united to you. And he spoke to your dust and the dust of this world. You know, we're just a speck. You guys ever watch those videos? We're nothing. We are the speck on a speck. The claim being made now is utterly. It beggars the imagination, doesn't it? If that being is real and does exist, as I have just posited and claimed, it just makes sense that death fell in front of him. It makes sense that he ran out of a tomb living and alive. It makes sense that he was glowing and the, and the angels are like lightning. Well, of course they're that magnificent. Look at the universe. He's greater than all that. And that greatness and that magnificent God has walked into this world in its dust and into our lives in our dust in our room and, and said, you know what? I'm going to be one with Corey. If you, were to, if you were to weigh all the options of an eternal God in such a universe, would Corey be your first choice? <laughs> Praise our Savior. None of us would be his first choice. Not in any world that makes sense to us. Well, what's being presented to you here? What's being presented to you in... <laughs> you want to talk about how credible the... New, the, 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 the uh, the claims of the resurrection are, it's astounding. I want to invite you into this, and I want to invite you into this joy, and I want to invite you into what this claim must mean. Because if there is such a God who made this expansive ancient universe, and he is inviting you today into life with him, if he died in dusty Palestine and rose from the dead, then this phrase here that's so powerful, that death will no longer has dominion. 
and death shall have no dominion. Dylan Thomas wrote that poem. Death shall have no dominion. It will not rule. It does not have the final word. Now, the final misconception that the gospel is just about sin management, though, is answered by, if you have the life of a God in you, who's a, a God of love and purity and goodness, then guess what happens? You start wanting to do things that you never wanted to do before <laughs> because you're changed. By the, you're, in, you're becoming like that God. What did God, that God choose to do in the vastness of the universe? Love people who didn't even care that he existed. Praise him. What a wonder. And, and, so, and so if we're in him, if we're united to him, guess what does happen? Well, we want to be good now. We want goodness. We've never we've hungered for goodness. We've never had before. We never even hungered like that before. Um, I want to begin where I I want to end where I, I want to begin. I want to end where I began. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I'm just getting started, Alex. <laughs> That's my son. He's heard me preach many, many times. He's wondering, he's wondering. I know how long my day can go. Um, <laughs> um, one of the things I found, I found when I, when my parents were Buddhists when we first started, when we first began Christianity. And um, I remember sitting in a church like you're sitting right now. And uh, the preacher, thundering. I mean, you think I'm loud? Holy cow. And he's thundering up there. Telling us we need to come and give our lives to Christ. And I, I resisted it for weeks. I would just sit there, I'd listen. I really wanted to go, but I didn't know how. I wanted to respond, I wanted to do something. Things that he was saying made some sense in my heart, but I couldn't quite tell you what to do. I couldn't quite tell you I knew what to do. And I, I was fuzzy about it, and, and in my heart would leap inside me, as sometimes when the preacher was talking, but I didn't have tools to... I just didn't know what to do, and it was really embarrassing walking forward. We don't have people walk forward here, so you don't have to worry. Uh, but in that, in that old-timey country church, they made you walk down the aisle if you wanted to become a Christian. I chose one week to do it, and I, and, and I felt an, an, an instantaneous transformation in my whole person. And I'll also describe it. The same thing happened to my dad, my mom. But I want to encourage you into a prayer that has meant a lot in my life, and it's a prayer for Christians, not, it's a prayer for everybody. And it's just a place to start on Easter. Because I'm encouraging you to, that we're united to Christ's life and you're united to his death. And, and, and I, I, I want to encourage you to, to pray this. Help me to begin to begin. I, 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 know, I, know, I know how hard it, I know how, what it feels like to be helpless, <laughs> to not know what to do with these ideas or these truths. And then a part of you wondering, how could this even be true? And, and, it, and I describe the, the extent and age of the universe, it gets even harder. Oh, how could, and I know, I know the heart cries, and you have a bunch of questions, and I'll, I'll talk to you about those questions. If you want to meet with me and talk to me, I'll do that. But I want to invite you into a prayer that I pray. I pray to this day. And I've been walking with God for a real long time. I do this professionally. Help me to begin to begin to be a Christian. Help me to begin just to begin to know you. Help me to begin to begin.
And I think that's such a humble place in the presence of this loving God that he will hear you. Because beyond that is trust in Jesus. Hope and trust in Jesus. It will transform your life. Let's pray. Oh, Father, it's... Thank you for this Easter Sunday. Thank you. Thanks for being in Bethany down here. That is such a joy, Father. And, and thank you for new folks here and friends. And I'm thanks, so thankful my son's here, Lily's here. And, and I, I, Father, it's a good day. And would you forgive me for grumbling about preaching on Easter? I'm such a jerk. I pray for our hearts. I heard a lot of stuff today, Father, and I pray that anything that wasn't worth listening to, I pray it would be forgotten. I ask you to just let people forget it. But anything that was worth listening to and could help some, I pray that they would not be able to forget it. And you would help us to begin to begin something with you. You would show us the mysteries of your life and death and your resurrected life. You would show us the mysteries of a love that reaches outside of space and time into this world and this universe and decides to love a chump like me and folks like us. Would you forgive us for using, using theology to deal with our sins so we can do as we please? Uh, but, uh, Father, I pray that spirit would be nowhere near our church. Keep us all from that. And Father, um, yeah, anybody who thinks it's about moral improvement, will you, will you show them how, how free your grace is, how sweet your love is, and how they can't do it on their own? And you would let, let it give us all a, a measure of real joy tonight. We thank you we can be in your word together, and we thank you that we can come to the table together, and we thank you that we can worship like this. In Jesus' name, amen.